Our reading this morning is from Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sins the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was up as in the heat of the summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover my iniquities. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave me the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let the faithful pray to you while you, are, you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding but must be controlled by a bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who is trusting him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are bright in heart. We will continue our reading from 1 John chapter 1. 1 John 1, 8-9 If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. This is God's word. This is the last in a little series of four topical series. Uh, we've been looking at saints and sinners. Uh, and so actually we'll, we'll begin in Psalm 32, and by the end we'll get to uh, 1 John 1. So you may want to sort of shove a bit of paper in both. Uh, that'll help. But we're starting off in Psalm 32. Uh, let me lead us one more time as we pray. Our Father, we want to be those who, like David, rejoice in you and are glad and sing and are delighted in you and live lives upright in heart. So help us understand rightly the place of our sin, our guilt, our confession. So we are those who rejoice in you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we've been, spent this month topically thinking about how do we hold together uh, the sort of objective status that we have as as Christians with our subjective walk before the Lord. So we've sort of been mucking around with the table a bit like this. Uh, um, so our status before the Lord, if you're a Christian, is unchanging. Whereas our walk is sort of fluctuating. We have good days and bad days. Our status before the Lord is unconditional. It's all down to the work of Jesus Christ. But... Uh, our walk with the Lord, how much we enjoy Him, how we walk, that, well, that'll vary. Our status before God is complete. You can never be more righteous than you are now. You cannot. It's binary. You are a sinner, condemned by God, or a saint, as it were, righteous, loved by God. It's binary. Uh, however, in our walk, in our actual obedience, well, we can grow in that. 
uh, our status before God, the Father's love for us is unchanging. You cannot lose the love of God, your Father, for you. And yet how much we give the Father pleasure or displeasure, that can vary. We thought about that last time, holding those two together. Uh, And we come to this last one, which we think about today. Our status before God, you're forgiven if you're a Christian. You are always forgiven. You do not lose forgiveness. But there will be fluctuating guilt and joy that will ebb and flow. And really what I want to talk about this morning is a question quite often people ask me. You may not ask it of yourself, but I get asked it, believe it or not. Um, If Christians are always forgiven, why do we confess our sins? And if Christians are always forgiven, why have we just said the Lord's Prayer, forgive us? What, what is lacking? Do you see the, do you see the issue? If we're always forgiven, and that doesn't change, why does Jesus say, pray every day, forgive us our sins? What, why is that necessary? Is there any transaction that takes place at that point? Is there something lacking in our forgiveness that we need to, you know, it's sort of like a thermometer. It's sort of, oh, you're 100%, but ooh, you've gone down a bit. Forgive us, ooh, but up you go again. Thank goodness for that. Is, does it, no. Or another way of phrasing the question is, what happens if we don't confess our sin? You know, week by week, uh, it is not just our tradition, but our, we'll get to it, theological belief that it's a very good idea to say a public confession. What happens if we don't? Are we stuffed? Because actually most churches don't. <gasps> Why do we do that? Are we just a bit gloomy here? Like a little bit of public self-flagellation? No, I think there's good reasons. Christians are never meant to live with overwhelming guilt, but we are meant to be honest. There is an ongoing battle of with sin, and we need to take it to the cross of Jesus and experience afresh that forgiveness. Look, I'm going to break it a bit like this. We're, we're loosely looking at Psalm 32. I, this is no thorough exposition uh, uh, today. We'll get back to that uh, normal pattern of going through books of the Bible next week as we return to John. But uh, I want to base ourselves largely in Psalm 32. I'm going to say three things. Uh, they're these. Guilt is good. Confession brings comfort. And justification brings joy. Okay? Very simple. Guilt is good. Confession brings comfort. Justification brings joy. Let me explain them. Uh, first then, guilt is good. Brackets, if we're guilty. If you're not guilty, guilt is bad. Okay, just let me say that straight off. But guilt is good if you've done something that is wrong. Now I have to say probably in the 21st century not everyone agrees with that. That's a sort of statement you could say out in the, you know, if I wrote a column in, an, in, a, in a newspaper or a letter into uh, the Guardian and said, oh, I think guilt's a really good thing, no doubt there'd be replies saying, oh, what, what, sort, of, what sort, of, sort of bloke are you? Why are you so miserable? Why are you so down on yourself? Don't feel guilty. Just get over it. Whatever you've done wrong, forgive yourself. That's the important thing. As long as you forgive yourself, it's fine. Uh, And guilt is not the most popular of things in the 21st century. But look, when you've done something wrong, it's appropriate. I was uh, reading again this, or last week, of uh, uh, John Newton. 
most famous, of course, for Amazing Grace, and uh, uh, probably the most popular hymn ever written. I don't know about that, but probably. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I guess in the 21st century, you might want to say, easy, John. A wretch? It's a bit strong, isn't it? Um, Saved a, a man who did a few things wrong. Like me. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, who, well, I was feeling a bit miserable, and, and I just heard this story of Jesus, and it cheered me up. Wretch! Wretch is a bit, a bit strong. Why do you feel so bad about yourself? You've got self-esteem issues, John. That's it. So get off your ship and go to Liverpool, and you know, the um, self-esteem issues. Of course, the issue with John Newton, he, he was, uh, I forget the year, but he was converted, became a Christian, but then carried on as a slave trader for another four or five years. And at some point towards the end of that four or five year period, he started to think to himself, this isn't good, is it? Kidnapping people, transporting them in horrific conditions. Maybe that's not good. Maybe that's devaluing human life. Maybe I shouldn't be doing that as a Christian. Now, what you don't want is some sort of superficial Christian minister coming along or 21st century therapist and saying, no, John, it's fine. You know, there's no problem with you, John. You've just got self-esteem issues. Just wake up every morning and say to the mirror, you're a good person, you're a good person, you're a good person. I think most of us would say, I'm glad he's guilty because he's doing something wrong. That's a horrific thing to be a slave trader. Stop it. And you call yourself a Christian. Stop it. You know, at that point, guilt is good. It's pricking his conscience. You'd say entirely right and appropriate. And in that sense, when you know, when you've done something wrong, objectively, guilt is good. You want it. Now, occasionally, some even Christians will want to say, "Oh, don't be so introspective." You know, the problem with you lot, I know, it's the problem with you lot at Christchurch Mayfair is. You're sort of introspective. You sort of, have I done anything wrong? Is there anything I need to confess? Don't, don't analyze. Don't, don't go looking for faults in yourself. Just know that Jesus has forgiven everything and don't worry about what you've done. Well, actually, if you're doing something wrong, you should worry about it. If you're conduct, if you know, if you're here today and are involved in the slave trade, human trafficking, feel bad. Don't do it. Stop it. Don't just think, well, it doesn't really matter. Jesus covers me and I'm forgiven for whatever I've done. No, feel bad. It's just what I mean. It's entirely right that you feel bad. Psalm 32. Psalm 32, we're told it's of David. Uh, we're not told explicitly here, but most of the scholars would agree. It's probably written after uh, he's been exposed. He's had an affair, an extramarital affair with Bathsheba, and to cover it up, has killed her husband, Uriah. He's been all confronted with his sin and now confessed it. And he knows there is delight in being forgiven. So you can say, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose, in whose spirit is no deceit. There is real blessing to knowing forgiveness. But he doesn't it's not superficial here. Four different words for sin. Transgressions, rebellion, sins of verse 1, sort of falling short of the standard. Sin of verse 2, it's being bent or twisted out of shape. Deceit, lying. But, you know, I know I've done wrong. I'm willing to confess I have done wrong, but forgiven, 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 forgiven. 
Good. Good, David. You committed adultery and you committed murder. Good. You should feel bad about that. Now, verses 3 and 4 describe quite how he did feel before he confessed his sin. It's very strong, isn't it? Verse 3, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Strikingly, there's an emotional impact here. There's a physical impact upon David. Physical symptoms because he knows guilt. Yes, sometimes people will know that. Not always, but sometimes. But he's saying, look, when you, when you know you've done something wrong and you don't deal with it, you don't confess it, you don't repent, that unconfessed guilt is like a, well, if I can put it this way, it's like a splinter in the soul. It just niggles away. Uh, yesterday afternoon, uh, Kerry was doing some cleaning and my wife at home cleaned some cupboards and wooden cupboard and got a splinter in her finger. Ow. And uh, as of yet, hasn't come out. Can't quite get it out. And it sort of just niggles. It's there, and you know there's a problem that's there, and it sort of niggles and is annoying. And if I take her hand, not because it's me, but because um, uh, pressure upon that, that makes it even more pronounced. The pain is more obvious. Now, my medical knowledge is limited, and I'm sure we'll get it out at some point today, but if you don't get a splinter out at some point, there can be infection. In freakish sort of cases, I think the infection can travel through your body and do damage to your organs and that sort of thing. Uh, in freak, you know, this is where the doctor starts smiling and, well, it's not a bit like that. Yeah, it's a bit like that. It's a bit like that. Run with it. Run with it. Unconfessed guilt is a bit like that. It's a splinter. A splinter in the soul, we'll put it in that sense. And sometimes it's niggling away and we just ignore it. And at those points, actually, what we need is someone to give our, well, to give the splinter a good squeeze. Actually, that's what the Bible does sometimes. Certainly the laws in the Bible, you know, we may be carrying on in an adulterous affair and uh, sort of blissfully. And then all of a sudden you hear very clearly or you read very clearly, God hates adultery. It's like there's the splinter that's there. It's a good squeeze. And, um, oh, okay, well, I've got to do something about that. You just, there's a point of conviction. And we know we have to do something. That's why the, the Bible contains both God's laws and God's promises of forgiveness. We need both. The laws expose us, reveal where there's an issue. And then we need forgiving. Or, or think of it this way. We had a family trip to the dentist a little while ago. And uh, there was a sort of collective being told off for not brushing quite effectively enough. Yeah, they've got to make their money, haven't they, and justify their existence. I'm sure it was all fine, really. But anyway, they um, they commended to us, which I hadn't used for about 25 years, I don't think. You know those, uh, those funny pink tablets that you clean your teeth? I think they only give them to children and particularly badly behaved adults. But anyway, those funny pink tablets. And uh, you clean your teeth and then you put one in your mouth and crunch it up and... <laughs> slosh it all around in your mouth and um, uh, it stains the teeth where there's plaque left and you go oh okay that's not so good and you have another go and, and clean it all up again and then you have an, you know, another type of you slosh it oh that's better and now everything is genuinely clean and uh, huzzah uh, off we go and feel virtuous about having the best teeth in the house um, well actually sometimes the, the, the laws of the bible are a bit like that 
We think we're fine. We think we're clean. They actually, God's law comes along and says, no, no, there's, there's, there's plaque there, morally. And if you don't remove it, eventually it'll corrode you. It'll corrode you. So occasionally you'll have someone say something like, oh, Christians don't need to be taught law from the Bible. They only need the gospel. Well, yeah, if you want to be a superficial Christian, that's fine. But if you want to make progress, if you want to mature, if you want your sins to be exposed and repent of them and grow to be more like Jesus, then you'll need both. Both the laws which reveal your sin and the gospel to clean you. You do need both. And so guilt is good. Guilt is good if it reveals that there is a genuine problem and it forces me back to the gospel. In that sense, it's good. Okay, but uh, the turning point of this psalm comes verse 5. So second little thing to say, if guilt is good, confession brings comfort. Confession brings comfort. Uh, Verse 5 of Psalm 32. Here's the turning point. Then, then I acknowledge my sin to you. And did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. So David is, he's no, he knows the distress of a guilty conscience. He's trying to suppress it. He's trying to suppress it, but he knows the guilt. If there's a splinter in his soul, he's not well. Actually, physically, he's starting to suffer. And then he's brought to the point of relief. Oh, I'm just going to pour it all out. Confess it all to the Lord. There is enormous relief at that. You know, a number of here would know that. There's a, 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 another church I worked at. As a young man, I'll call him Adam. It's not his name, but call him Adam. Uh, Adam was very able, uh, very talented, very gifted young man, brilliant with people, socially smooth, great career. Uh, and he decided, you know, consultation, uh, he was going to work full-time for the church. And so he gave up his career and uh, worked full-time for the church. Uh, but it wasn't, there was something just not quite right. And there was a certain, uh, he seemed to lose his joy working for the church. And wasn't quite as good with people and, and this, it wasn't quite right. And after a while, the, the, the pastor and, and he had a conversation. They agreed, this can't, this isn't right. I mean, you're not enjoying this. Um, you need to go back into the city and, you know, back to your, your the, uh, the, that career. And, and he did that. Um, and actually, a little while later, he got married and the marriage was okay. But it, again, his wife said, this is, it's not right. There's something not right here. We're, we're struggling. We're, we're not relating very well. Actually, a couple of years down the line into this, finally he said, look, when I was working for the church, actually I had multiple sexual partners. I don't know what I was going through at the time, but I, I just was sleeping around. It was a different woman every week. And... Um, I just couldn't deal with that. The, the, I couldn't tell anyone. I mean, I, you know, I was respected in the church and I, I just couldn't admit it. So it was easiest to say, yeah, it's just not working out and go back to, and I thought, well, I'll marry and it'll be fine. And, you know, I haven't done anything. I haven't committed adultery at all while being married, but, but it's just, 
ground me down. Eventually, he just pulled out, and yes, he and his wife, you know, there was a few sessions of counseling for them. And of course, the church minister goes, oh, that was, okay, that's, it wasn't just working for the church, that what was what was going on, and oh, how stupid, why didn't I ask that question? Of course, you look back with regret, and, but he confessed his sin, and all of a sudden, well, there was a period of working through things with his wife, but wow, wow. All of a sudden, there was a man of joy again, a man who delighted to serve at church, didn't feel the need to run away. You see, for someone like him, his guilt was good. He shouldn't have been sleeping around. The hypocrisy of his position crippled him. His guilt was good, but he held on to it. For four years, he just held on to it, never confessed it. And those are four miserable years in his life, four wasted years in his Christian service, four years when he was not enjoying his relationship with God as father. There's enormous relief when you confess your sin. Now, of course, in one sense, that's a strong example. But even in lesser ways, I think many of us would know that unconfessed sin isolates. If we know we've done something wrong, it isolates us from God. We just, we just feel awkward praying. It's just not easy to do. It also isolates us from others at church because we just feel that little sense of hypocrisy. We may not name it. We may not vocalize it in our own minds, but we, there's something a bit wrong. So we withdraw a little bit. Just don't want to be with people at church quite as much. Whereas you confess it and you're restored and you know and there's delight in the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and you, you love being with people from church again. You think, I can sit in the front row because everyone's a sinner at church. It's fine. Whereas the unconfessed sin, it just isolates. It leaves you very lonely. One thing I read last week, I thought was a evocative phrase. It was written 500 years ago, the Puritan Thomas Manton. He said, confession is the vomit of the soul. <laughs> Which is not a nice phrase, and that's his point, of course. If you've got food poisoning, you, you eat something, oh, that's delicious, oh, look at that, oh, that was a wonderful, whatever it is, oyster. And um, you eat something, and it's delicious as it goes in, but it wasn't right. And the body says, you got to get rid of that, or it's going to do you a lot of harm. And so you have this unpleasant experience. Um, and he said, confession can be a bit like that sometimes. You, you do something, and at the time, it's delightful. It's delightful, you, you, you know. But then it, it, you say, oh, I shouldn't have done that, really. And it sort of rumbles around and rumbles around a little bit. And you feel a bit, you know, it's all sort of bubbling away. You've got to get it out. And actually, the experience of getting it out, you know, some of us who are here will know, the point where we're brought to actually confessing, look, I, I've lied in this scenario. I've stolen in this scenario. Whatever it may be, I've cheated in this scenario. Confessing that to another person, that's not pleasant. But afterwards you feel much better. You've got rid of the the sickness, as it were. And that's David in Psalm 32. It's not just self-pitying regret. Oh, I've been exposed. Oh, no. Everyone's going to think much less of me now. There's a genuine emotional involvement here. So verse 5, you forgave the guilt of my sin. In one sense, there's a redundancy there. He could just say, you forgave my sin. 
But it's like you, you, you forgave the, is literally the iniquity of my sin. You, you, you forgave the sinfulness of my sin. I, I, I recognize not just there are consequences for sin that I regret, but I hate the sin. I hate, I, I hate the sinfulness of the thing I've done. It's now unpleasant to me. It's, I, I don't, I'm not just, I'm not just feeling bad that Nathan the prophet has exposed me. I hate what I did to Bathsheba. And I hate what I did to her husband. Okay. Question. Was David not forgiven at the point where he hadn't confessed? I phrased that very badly. Was David unforgiven until he confessed? That's a bit better. Because it looks a bit like that, doesn't it? Verse 5. I said, I will confess, and then you forgave. So to, to try and put it in picture terms, is it that uh, David is the believer who lives in God's house of forgiveness? Oh, I love being in God's house of forgiveness. And he does something wrong and he's thrown out of the house. And only at the point where he says, oh, I'm really sorry, does he come back into the house again? Is that the picture? You see? And is that what we're supposed to be like as Christians? I'm a Christian and the Lord, I mean, the Lord loves me and forgives me and now I've done something wrong. And only when I confess my sin do I come back into the house. Is that the picture? No. The status of forgiveness never changes. The status never changes. The objective work of Jesus Christ ensures that. There is no transaction that we need to make to bring us back into the house. If you're a Christian, you never leave the house. But confession is the way that we know in our hearts and our minds, in our emotions, in our conscience, that we remain in the house. It's how we enjoy living in the house and don't hide away in the bedroom and not, not really engage and speak to anyone if, to really push it for what it's worth. Do you see, it is in the conscience. Well, let me quote. I enjoyed, this is um, a little observation of Christopher Ashes. It is in my conscience that I hear God's gracious word of justification in Christ. I don't just hear it outwardly and in theory. I hear it in my experience. I hear it in my self-awareness. That's what's going on here. And so I think, biblically, if I could put it this way, it's important that we feel the truth of our justification. But what is true objectively, there are times when we need to reclaim it subjectively. I overheard a phrase recently, um, which has just gone round and round in my head, that great sinners make great singers. Great sinners make... Now, and by that, I think the bloke didn't mean... <laughs> uh, didn't mean that uh, uh, the more you do wrong, the better your voice gets. You know, you're a little bit out of tune, just go and rob a bank and knock over a granny and you'll sing better. Uh, a bit embarrassed about your voice? No, just go and murder someone and grab a mic and it'll be fine. He's not. doesn't mean that. But great awareness, great awareness of your sin makes you into one who loves to praise the Lord. 
is what he meant. And it is very striking, isn't it? The, some of the hymns, perhaps, that Christians love to sing most. John Newton, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. There's an awareness of sin, and that's why grace is so amazing. Or as we sang at the beginning today, Charles Wesley's, and can it be? Can it be true? Can it be true? Can it be true that Jesus died for me, who caused him such pain? There's a a self-awareness of his sin there, isn't it, that says, well, that's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. The the lovely, well-known truth of John Newton, age 82, famously said, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I'm a great sinner and Christ is a great saviour. And you can't separate those two things. You you sing and know Jesus as a great saviour when you're aware of your own sin. And we want to grow the gap. In one sense, we become less, he becomes more. So a true understanding of forgiveness, such as David has here in Psalm 32, a true understanding, a true understanding of being righteous is not just cognitive. It's not just, well, I know I'm forgiven. I've got a free pass to heaven. That's useful. I'll keep that in my back pocket. It's a truth that is glorious to you. That's why David writes, blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. This is wonderful. Rejoice in the Lord. Our joy in what Jesus has done is deepened by the horror of our sin. And how wonderful it is to know forgiveness. Okay. Guilt is good. Confession brings comfort. Uh, and last, we'll push it just a little bit further. Justification brings joy. Briefly, could you turn on to uh, 1 John chapter 1? 1 John chapter 1. I've lost the page. But, uh, oh no, I haven't. Yes, I have. Uh, maybe you did better than me. I just put my bookmark in the wrong place. Page 1225. I just want to show you again in the New Testament how this objective knowledge that we remain forgiven, if you're a Christian, always, you're always in God's house, how it fits with the subjective awareness of that. So just um, 1 John, just look at me, just chapter 2, verse 12 of 1 John, he would say this, I'm writing to you, dear children. Because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. Past tense. Your sins have been forgiven on account of his name or on account of what Jesus has done for you. Past tense. Your sins have been forgiven. They have been forgiven. And yet 1 John 1, 8 and 9, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, present tense, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Present tense, if we confess our sins, he'll forgive us our sins. So which is it, John? Is it that we're forgiven objectively because of what Jesus has done? Or is it only in our present tense when we confess that we're forgiven? Which is it? Well, here's how I think it has to be understood. See the contrast between verses 8 and 9. If we claim to be without sin, 
we're self-deceived, the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, then the truth is in us, in other words. If we confess our sins, we are forgiven. In other words, an ongoing confession of sin is just the mark you're a Christian. And a lack of confession, are you a Christian? John is saying, really? The Christian never leaves God's house. He's always in the house of forgiveness. But part of living in the house of forgiveness is every so often you have to say, oh, I need your forgiveness. I need it. Just recognizing that you're only in the house because you're forgiven. And if you you live the Christian life and you don't admit your sin and you never say there's a problem and someone says, do you confess your sins? And you say, no, there's no problem here. Do you really understand Christianity? That's John's point. A lack of confession is a mark of unreal Christianity. Uh, I remember as a 17-year-old, it's one of these things that sticks out in your memory, 17-year-old uh, lying to my dad. One night, I said, uh, Dad, I'm going to the cinema tonight with Stuart. Stuart's a nice friend. There's no problem. I wasn't going to the cinema with Stuart. I was going drinking with Pete. Uh, Pete was about 10 years older than me, a former ex-soldier, a hard-drinking man who was not viewed as a suitable influence upon a 17-year-old boy. Uh, and I went out drinking with Pete. Um, the only problem was, while I was out, my other friend Stuart had rung to chat to me. And Dad said, you're not at the cinema no. Oh. Uh, so I stumbled back in. Uh, my parents, sort of early to bed, early to rise sort of family. Uh, normally 10 o'clock, certainly. All bit. I stumbled back in about 11.30. There's my dad sat in a chair looking at me. You lied to me. And just went to bed. That was it. That was all he said. You lied to me. Uh, so I went to bed, wake up the next morning feeling wretched in every sense, I have to admit. I was not a Christian at the time. Uh, feeling, but chiefly wretched because I'd lied to dad. I had lied to him. And he was a good father. And there's no reason to do that. So I just woke and felt wretched. And my relationship with him was clearly going to be awkward that day. Eventually I emerged downstairs and he said, come on, I thought we were going for a driving lesson. What? You're not angry with me? Well, look at the garden. I've been pretty busy aggressively cutting back some of the trees. Um, My anger has been propitiated upon the trees of the garden. But no, come on. Come on, let's go for a driving lesson. At that point, I'm not thrown out of the house at any point. It's my family. He's not going to throw me out for one incident. But as I came down the stairs, I'm aware there's a problem. There's an awkwardness in our relationship. And my dad says, come on. I'm essentially come for the driving lesson. In other words, I forgive you. But there is still an awkwardness until I say to him, I am really sorry. I am really sorry. I didn't, that was unworthy of who you are. I respect you too much for that. I am sorry. I won't do it again. Very good. Come on. He wasn't, he was a man of few words really. Come on. Very good. Uh, and off we went. You see, there needs to be that confession for things to relationally be restored. Even though I was still 
accept it. I was still, even I'd been forgiven at that point. Now again, let me just push it a little bit further. In that incident, did I discover for the first time that my father loved me? No. I'd always known that. Did he love me more because of my... No. Why do I remember that so vividly as a childhood memory? Because I felt wretched, and yet he was so good and kind that it just burned into my head that experience of knowing his forgiveness. And that is the Christian life. We're always forgiven. If you're a Christian, you just don't lose that. You never leave the Father's house. But there are moments where we know we've done wrong and we, we're forced to confess. And they're joyful moments to us. They're memorable moments as we experience afresh how good it is to be forgiven. Maybe the last thing I'll briefly say, because we're going to move and share the Lord's Supper together. Confession, oh, there's lots of things to say. Confession, let me just say, take one. Here at church, why do we do it? And some of them are quite strong. Where's the uh, the service sheet? This one we we often say, the uh, from the old uh, Anglican prayer book. We earnestly repent and are truly sorry for our misdoings. The memory of them grieves us. The burden of them is more than we can bear. Really? Well, look, why do we say a confession week by week? There is nothing magical about those words. And if we decided next week, let's not have one. It's fine. Fine, the world won't end. There's no problem with that. But it's healthy for us. There is no transaction that takes place when we say confession. Again, it's not that we're unforgiven and we move back into forgiveness. You never leave the Lord's house. You never leave your father's house if you're a Christian. But it's healthy for us. Healthy at reminding us who we are. It's a healthy part of our growth as Christians, reminding us we're dependent upon the Lord. Last year, I spent, uh, when I was on study leave for a few months, I visited a number of churches. It was very striking to me. Not many churches say a confession. And you can go and visit churches, and there's sort of enormous emphasis on you're adopted, you're loved, God, God delights in you, and that's good. But no sense that there's anything that needs to change. And you can go to other places where you are miserable sinners. And that's kind of it. And that's the tone of it all. And you think, well, I really am. But there's not a lot of delight or joy. And you have got to hold the two together. Where there is no confession of sin, there is very little power to change, to grow. Where there is only confession of sin and not a continuing fresh awareness of God's forgiveness. There's just only gloom. You need both. You need both. Two, I'm getting very forgetful, says John Newton, two things I remember. I'm a great sinner, and Christ is a great saviour. So why do we confess our sins? Not to be forgiven, That never changes, but to remind ourselves of that and how we need it and how wonderful it is that we're forgiven. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father God, we thank you that For those of us who are Christians, we can never lose your love. 
We can never fall outside of your forgiveness. That is constant. And yet we do want to be those who confess our sins when we're guilty to admit it. Not afraid to cover it up, but willing to admit it because we know there's going to be forgiveness through you. Father, I pray for any here who are struggling with a splinter in the soul. They know there is guilt and they haven't confessed it to do so and know the joy that David knew of forgiveness. For those of us who are perhaps a little superficial, would we be willing to push harder to admit the flaws in our life in order that we may know greater joy in Christ as Saviour? We do want to be those who sing and to teach us of our sins so that we may delight in our forgiveness and sing of your goodness, we pray. Amen.